0: All right, everyone. So on Empire, you obviously know that we talk a lot about the institutions coming into crypto. And that is why we are super excited to share that we are hosting the Digital Asset Summit. We've hosted this since 2019. It's coming up in London, March 18th to 20th. Don't miss your chance to get ahead of the curve. You can get 20% off with code EMPIRE20. We'll see you in London. This episode is brought to you by Toku. If you are planning to launch a token, already have a live token, are granting employees or contractors, vesting token awards, or are just trying to figure out how to take care of taxable token events for your team, from easy-to-use token grant award templates through tracking vesting to managing tax withholdings. Make it simple today with Toku. All right, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Empire. We have uh, Joe McCann, founder, CEO, and CIO of Asymmetric joining us. Joe, welcome
1: to the show, man. Hey, thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Yeah.
0: So I was reading your uh, most recent investor letter, and you kicked off with this uh, concept of short intellectual convexity. And I thought uh, you started off your investor letter with this idea. And I thought it'd be interesting to start the podcast with this with this idea. What does that mean to you being short intellectual convexity? And why is that important as it relates to crypto investing?
1: Yeah, uh, it's, a, it's a great question. And, and I, I have to credit my colleague, uh, Chris, who works at the firm um, with the actual phrase, but it's something that has resonated with me for a while. And so the easiest way to kind of describe it is an example. Um, and I mentioned this in the, in the market update, as you described. So back when, you know, uh, I call the past, well, up until a couple of years ago, uh, we were in, you know, I don't know, 13, 14 years of zero to near zero interest rates. And in, you know, 2020, when the fed cut rates to zero and, and the treasury pumped a bunch of stimulus into the system, um, risk assets went to the moon, right? can't earn any money on cash, so you got to invest in stuff. And so at the time, people just couldn't envisage a world where rates are all of a sudden at five and a half percent, five and a quarter, five and a half, the the quarters in between, right? Um, They were short intellectual convexity, meaning they they couldn't see or, or forecast something like, Five and a half percent or five and a quarter percent rates, because they had been in this environment for so long, uh, they just couldn't see it. And naturally, what happened—the <laughs> the fastest tightening cycle I think ever, or certainly in a generation—you um, know—hits the tape, and 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 people took it on the chin. Now, uh, you know, a lot of folks are sort of like, "Well, rates are going to just stay higher for longer." Right. The same same thing. Right. Now we're in this this environment where rates have risen, risen so high that uh, why can't they keep going higher? Or why, why aren't they going to stay higher for longer? So this is not a necessarily a forecast for me to say, hey, the Fed's going to cut rates next week. The net of it is, is that, you know, look, um, right now people are short intellectual convexity with re- respect to rates. And we you know there's a there's a good chance that rates could be cut for some unforeseen reason. Um, and that applies to crypto, right? So one of the things that I mentioned in the in the um, market update is one of the hardest things about being a really good trader uh, in any asset class, but particularly crypto, is when the the market structure has changed, right? And so people have been beaten up, rightfully so, mentally and emotionally, probably spiritually, depending on how strong your maximalism is over the past, you know, call it 18, 20, 20 months. And uh, they couldn't envisage a world where, wait, actually things are changing. Things are going to be like, you know, money's coming back into the system or, or, you know, altcoins are going to rise, et cetera, et cetera. A lot of folks were, uh, and still actually right now are offsides, meaning they're, they're, they're not believing this rally. They're not invested in this rally uh, and they are short intellectual convexity in that regard. They can't envisage the world actually changing because it's been a certain way for so long. And the way that you make fortunes as a trader or slash, you know, investor, particularly in liquid assets, is is understanding when that that inflection point. It's really, really, really hard to do. I've been doing this twenty three years, so I have a little bit of experience. I try to identify these things. I've definitely been wrong in the past uh, with identifying it, but in my opinion um, we're there now and the price action in October really suggested that. Uh, and then, you know, you, you kind of look at the, the overall flows that have been uh, coming into crypto related products. Um, they're huge. Uh, and this isn't okay. just you know, necessarily Bitcoin. This is other things like Solana as well. So when you
0: say that we're, we're there now, what, tell us more about what you mean by that.
1: Sure. So um You know, in January, we had a huge run in a number of, uh, you know, crypto assets, total crypto market cap went up significantly. You had a bunch of assets that were just completely battered, Um, you know, Solana being one of them down 97% from its all-time high or whatever. Uh, And those flows, you know, kind of managed, they kind of happened for a decent bit there in January, continued a little bit into February, and then kind of like... Q2, we sort of traded a little bit sideways to lower, and then we had like, uh, you know, the the ETF news in June, and that that caused a bunch of additional interest, etc. But the, the reality was, like, if you looked at you know spot volumes and even, um, uh, you know, on-chain on volumes, they were just they weren't ex- they weren't even there, right? <laughs> like they were just dropping off at precipitous pace. I mean, yes, you had like Pepe Coin, and you had Ordinals, and you had certain things that would like idiosyncratically spike. You know, interest and in volumes, but that's just basically you know crypto natives you know speculating and punting around, shuffling money, right? Um, the difference now is, uh, I think, is heavily flow driven. So if you look at, um, like I mentioned just a second ago, if you look at like the actual institutional inflows into crypto right now, uh, they're very meaningful. The most um, October, I think, was like the month that had the highest amount of flows into Bitcoin, ETH, Solana, and a bunch of other products. Um, all year, and those types of flows are not fast money. Like, you know, I run a hedge fund and a venture fund, but on the hedge fund side, we're considered fast money. Um, fast money doesn't, uh, or excuse me, uh, you know, allocators don't trade like hedge funds, right? They're not squeezing a few, you know, percentage points here and there. They're they're accumulating, right? They're allocating. Size. And so some of the software I built at Asymmetric helps us identify when these flows are actually coming in in real time on the tape. And we were just seeing, you know, particularly Solana, um, massive prints hitting the tape, meaning large trades hitting uh, the kind of, you know, call it retail or slash institutional markets, Binance, Coinbase, Bybit, et cetera, on the spot market side, not the derivatives. And when you start to see this type of flow coming in consistently, right? And you look at the charts, you're like, wow, this thing is overbought. It's got to pull back. When it doesn't pull back, that is a very, very strong signal to you that there's real accumulation from allocators coming into the space. Now, we're not talking about tens of billions of dollars yet, but on a relative basis, the amount of flows that are coming in are meaningful. Now, in addition to that, if you look at um, stablecoin... uh, um, flows coming back into exchanges and particularly on chain, uh, they're rising at a pretty, pretty large pace for the first time in a very long time. And so one of the questions I would get from in- investors earlier this year is kind of like, where who's the you know, incremental marginal buyer of crypto at this point? And my answer was, there isn't one. Uh, not until you actually start to see stablecoin flows come back into these markets, uh, because then people aren't necessarily speculating or investing in the space. And so, uh, you know, you, you kind of put that together. I also run a lot of technical analysis, um, in addition to you know flows and and kind of the reading the tape, etc. And I put all these together and say, probabilistically, there's a high chance that this is actually a change in the market structure. Um, sure, I could be totally wrong, and it could plunge fifty percent while we're on this call. Right? That's that's crypto for you but uh, the probabilities really favor it. And then finally, I think as you look into some major catalysts that are going to be uh, at the beginning of uh, next year, the happening, of course, but also uh, our view is really that the ETF uh, and, and or ETFs will be approved in January. And so you see a lot of this in the options markets as well. So you see a lot of call buying and, and, and people basically long vol into that general uh, strike, like that range, December, January. Um, which means they're they're bullish heading into that, and so yes, traders can be wrong, options traders can be wrong, um, but again, it's just like another one of those check boxes that are checked that suggests to me that this is actually meaningful uh, and a meaningful shift in the market structure today.
2: Yeah, if you look at the crypto market cap as a proxy, you know it really bottomed shy of just south of a, a trillion, right? A trillion, I believe. Uh, yeah. And now you're at 1.4. So, you know, roughly speaking, there's been 400. Some of that's inflation driven, but call it between 300 and 400 billion is, you know, market cap expansion um, over the course of the year. Um, When you think about like which institutions in which jurisdictions, do you have a sense of where that is and 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 what strategies are deploying?
1: Yeah, great question. So... The short answer is you can never actually know unless you're kind of the, the dealer or the market maker. Um, if you're talking with these say, Family offices or sovereign wealth funds, I don't believe sovereign sovereign wealth funds at this point are purchasing crypto, but they could be. Um, what we try to do is look at what we call like the biorhythms throughout the trading day, right? So crypto, as you guys know, are 24 seven, but there are specific chunks of the day where um, you can see differences in, in the flows. And so, you know, to, to begin every day um, and I'm just, I live on the West coast of the United States. So, um, you know, at call it, I don't know, four ish AM, four or 5 AM my time. So maybe seven, 8 AM East coast time. Uh, you've got like the U.S. hours. And then when U.S. hours end, you then have the next, you know, technical day, uh, which Asia starts to, you know, trade. And then after that, you've got the European hours. So if you break those up into, you know, eight, three, eight hour segments, you can kind of get a sense for um, who's actually buying, right? And so with respect to the U.S. hours, these are the ones that we pay attention to, particularly um, because a lot of the institutional flow uh, comes through U.S. hours and particularly through Coinbase. Um, because Coinbase has an institutional offering, uh, you, can, you can kind of suss out a lot from the order flow that's coming out of Coinbase. They have their Coinbase Prime offering, Coinbase Pro with a number of other products, I get so confused every time I log into Coinbase. But um, so we, we tend to look at, you know, US hours, what's happening particularly on Coinbase. And as that relates to something like, like Binance, um, we can't actually identify, is this a family office? Is this a hedge fund? Is this a, an asset manager? Um, but what we can identify is, uh, or I guess what we can infer from it, are the way that the flows are actually being accumulated? And so there's two things that we look at. One is is um, can you kind of detect uh, what are called TWAP orders or time weighted average price? So somebody that just says, "Hey, buy me ten million dollars worth of Solana over the course of the next 12 hours. I don't, I don't care what the price is. Just you know, keep keep buying it." That's one thing that we do is we look for you know we detect these types of um, these types of uh, automated orders. Uh, the second thing that I kind of t- t- tend to look at it, uh, is the premium or discount on Coinbase relative to Binance. Um, Binance, as you guys know, has the majority of the market share for trading. There's all kinds of punters on that platform. Um, I'm not suggesting there aren't institutions that buy and sell on Binance. I'm sure they do. But very few U.S. institutions will do that, if any, uh, and for hopefully obvious reasons. And so if there is a persistent premium for an asset, let's say you're you're trading Solana and you know, it's, I don't know, 20, 30 basis points higher on Coinbase relative to, to Binance. And yes, Binance does have tethers. So you have to factor that in. But if that is a persistent premium, that suggests to us that there's real institutional allocators or people with real size that are buying because they're willing to pay above market price relative to what's on Binance. And mm-hmm. so if you use kind of like the daily biorhythms coupled with um, that, that premium and kind of trying to detect... These systematic flows, you can get a sense that, hey, this isn't just retail, right? It's not like everybody got airdropped a bunch of money from the government and went on Robinhood and bought Bitcoin. That's just not the case right now. And you can see this in the order flow.
0: So what is the what else does the order flow show right now, Joe, in terms of, I guess, both what Santi was asking, like, is it US-based, maybe EMEA-based? Or also the other, I think, pressing question is, in terms of this specific rally, does it feel overbought? underbought think that there's room to run pullback coming how do you think about like this just the short-term trade there as well
1: yeah it's a great question i mean uh if you if and i love technical analysis i've been using my whole career but if you were using ta uh say on you know solana recently you you shorted or missed everything right because it, it was just consistently overbought on every time frame it's still overbought on the time frames but the thing that I think a lot of traders miss about things being overbought or oversold is they can stay that way for a long time. Mm. Yeah. And that is driven by momentum and flows. And so uh, if, if, for example, um, you know, when Solana first kind of broke out uh, kind of near like that FTX implosion level of mid 30s, um, it was overbought. And so I think a lot of people were saying, oh, you know, I'll just this is now going to pull back and I'll end up buying it in the high 20s, low 30s. What happened? The thing went to 48 right. in a blink, right? And so, again, the, the kind of like identifying when to use TA and use like these other skills with respect to understanding the flows of how of what's happening in the market are critically important because... If you look at celestia for example they just recently launched their token and they were kind of trading for a few days in this like this 2 250 range now it's trading like six bucks right it's clearly overbought on like a one hour four hour even potentially daily time frame depending on your indicators but there's flows behind it and so i think like that's the the, the key and so do i think this rally has legs i think it's also very uh token specific right so well, on that point, I guess I wanted to
2: ask you: Are we in this environment where you just long everything? Because you know, <laughs> it,
0: it does do, feel like I'm, very quickly. No, no, no it's, a, like long, it's an honest
2: long. question. Like, look, I parify now is that we like to overintellectualize our role as investors, but there are environments where no matter what you're punting, everything goes up. And I hate yeah. to say it, but that's just crypto sometimes. And so I am curious: Are we entering that environment? How you how do you position yourself? There's certainly like some narratives evolving, right? Like certain L2s, um, you know, stuff like Celestia and certainly the nope. Solana ecosystem. But, uh, yeah, I'm curious how you think about that.
1: Yeah. I mean, it, it's a, it's a great, uh, interruption question. Cause that's exactly where I was going with this is that part of the problem with, um, this is that like, you're like, Oh, well I'll just like, I'll just long everything and, and it'll be fine. Um, That's great if you're just trading like your personal account and you know you want to manage your own portfolio, whatever. If you have LPs like I do, uh, you have to generate returns and you have to do that in a way that you know beats a benchmark. And so, no one's paying, I mean, there are lots of people that will take two and 20 at a hedge fund to just buy and hold Bitcoin, right? I'm not that guy, right? And so, part of my job is to almost be like a stock picker, I need to identify the right assets that are going to generate. Outsized returns relative to, say, a benchmark like Bitcoin, um, and the the trouble with that is is twofold. One is is are they liquid enough, depending on like the size of your book, right? Um, and that that's one issue. And then the other issue is is that uh, if you're not actually managing the risk of being long only everything, um, the volatility in your book will be crazy. And so, a lot of investors, yes, they're investing in crypto. They know it's clearly volatile. They're still going to want to understand—at uh, least my investors do—how are you managing that risk so that the the volatility in your portfolio isn't triple digits, uh, you know, every day, right? Um, so, what I would say is that with with respect to you know longing everything, it's not financial advice. Anything I'm saying, by the way, <laughs> uh, I think if you just picked a basket of tokens and we're long them from here, in 18 months, you're probably doing great. Um, However, I do think that narratives matter, to your point, Santi. like Narratives really matter in crypto. And um, if you look at, say, the price of Ether recently, you had the ETF news, and Solana went up 40%. (laughs) So what does that tell you? Well, correlation is not causation, of course. But um, I think that there is uh, a, there's a challenge with respect to um, Ethereum's narrative right now in terms of price, um, and we can kind of dive into that as you see fit. Because one, um, most institutional allocators, large allocators, yes, there could be potentially this BlackRock Ethereum ETF, and that could generate a ton of flows into Ethereum. Most of them have all been uh, uh, focused on Bitcoin. I just need to have some Bitcoin allocation, digital gold, yada, yada, set it and forget it, whatever, right? Now I can get it through BlackRock or whomever. Uh, um, if you're a crypto native or, or someone that's actually purchasing crypto directly, like spot assets, uh, what is the purpose of holding, say, Ethereum relative to Solana from a return perspective? And this is where the narrative comes in. So remember, Ethereum went from basically zero, it didn't exist to 1400 down to 80 and then to like 4,800, right? Well, Solana went from zero, didn't exist to 260 down to $8. Well, what's the next level for Solana? Even if that doesn't happen, it's the narrative that's seated in the minds of investors, right? So for example, every TradFi, investor out there now that's actively managing a portfolio is looking at Solana and the reason is is they missed Ethereum. <laughs> they're like, wait a second is this th- this narrative could play out all over again. So am I gonna over allocate to Ethereum or am I going over allocate to Solana to have that potential outsized yeah. return right?
0: Joe, I think you're kind of, uh, we're, we're dipping into the Solana thesis. So maybe we can go full, full bore Solana thesis and, and kind of, I'd, I'd love to just hear your, inv- I mean, I remember January, 2023, Solana's down 97%. You guys start talking about loading up on it at like, I don't know, basically the bottom. Um, would love to yeah. just hear your full Solana thesis outside of, which I know is deeper than just, Hey, I think some other institutions are going to buy it because they missed the boat on ETH.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, the narrative is one aspect. You know, So my background, I've been a, a technologist and a trader for 23 years, um, ran an open source infrastructure company called NodeSource for Node.js, which is arguably one of the most popular open source projects on the planet. Um, and so I have a, a good bit of experience in understanding open source, understanding kind of like software development trends, et cetera. Um, and the, my my kind of thesis on Solana came from the, the bear market in like 2018, 19 uh you know best time to be doing RD is during a bear market. And so I was started to track the Ethereum ecosystem, build some solidity applications, was getting familiar with that. And then what dawned on me was like, wow, this is such a huge leap in computer science. Um, you can have these kind of permissionless applications just execute uh code and it can be verified um in a in a uncoercible way. Like that was just such a huge leap. And I commend Ethereum for that. Um what I was seeing, though, with Solana was they are taking a completely different approach to um, scaling a blockchain and uh, and also managing spam and making it cheap, et cetera, et cetera. And so what I look what I was looking at with Solana was, OK, Ethereum's design, which is not bad. I'm not saying this is, was a terrible idea. The design from a developer's perspective is. Anytime I build a Solidity application, I have to kind of optimize the code at like a per line of code level because it costs gas to execute all this kind of stuff. And that then leads to like a second order effect of, well, developers are likely going to build applications that aren't meant to be interacted with very frequently because it's a non-deterministic fee. It's non-deterministic in terms of how long it'll take for the transaction to settle, et cetera, et cetera. Solana thought about this very differently. They were like, what if we made it dirt cheap and super fast? And also we can do this by parallelizing transactions where when certain aspects of the state don't need to affect each other, they can be trans, they can be transacted in parallel. This to me was like a movie I'd seen before in tech previously. This concept of parallelizing, you know, compute or tasks is not new. We can go back to, you know, processors when they started to add SIMD, which is single instruction, multiple data set, right? You Instead of just doing one thing, you can do four of them. It's the same concept. Um, and so my view was really, hey, if there's going to be uh, an alternative to the approach that Ethereum has taken with building, you know, call them smart smart contracts on Solano, they just call them programs. Um, it's probably going to look something like this. And furthermore, when you now enable developers to not worry about how long is this going to take? How much is it going to cost? The spectrum of applications that they can build widens dramatically. And so my view was, hey, for, for the things that Ethereum is really good at, they'll probably just kind of own that. But for this other you know, massive set of applications that developers will inevitably just try out new and interesting things, this feels like a platform that would enable them to do that. And... What we've seen, irrespective of the price, what we've seen in Solana's, you know, kind of technological arc is, yes, they've had challenges. Pretty much every open source project has, right? Um, They've resolved all of those issues, particularly around reliability. But more importantly, the things that they've now added, things like um, state compression and enabling like the minting of millions of NFTs for, you know, a couple of dollars, uh, it's just not possible anywhere else, at least currently, right? It could happen on a new chain, it could happen with some you know, changes to some architectures, et cetera. But what's cool about this from my perspective is that when you enable developers, and I've seen this open source for a long time, when you enable developers to kind of have full expression of what they can and want to build, you end up with a lot of innovation. And to me, you know, I hate, I don't, want, I don't want to say I hate using this analogy because it, it seems somewhat derogatory, but, um, you know, Ethereum is kind of like Android, right? Like uh, OEMs can utilize this and it, it's a it's a mobile operating system and it works or whatever, right? But Solana kind of op- operates like the iPhone where Apple controls this kind of vertically integrated state, even though, yes, Solana is open source and all that. The point being that the types of applications that can be built on an iPhone, and and people choose to build an iPhone first, even though they have less of a market share, uh, ends up driving a lot of inf- innovation in the mobile space. I see the same sort of thing happening with something like Solana. Mm-hmm. What's Solana's biggest problem today? Uh, liquidity. We need more. We need more liquidity on chain. <laughs> I'm serious. Like, look. Oh, if we're, you, we're, if- we're, I mean, is that a function of just?
2: Not enough people, institutions, funds. Uh, certainly the DeFi ecosystem is thriving. You know, you're seeing DEX volumes surpassing Ethereum. Most recently, I've invested in closely kind of monitoring a lot of DeFi protocols. And the functionality and the protocols very much mimic the DeFi ecosystem and Ethereum. So when you say liquidity, can you help us unpack that?
1: Yeah. I mean, look, uh, Ethereum was first. Ethereum was the best. Uh, they have the lion's share of, of uh, assets available in pools and, and locked up. I'm not a huge fan of TVL, but people tend to use that as a as a shelling point for, you know, kind of like the value of a DeFi ecosystem. Um, it's just too low in Solana right now. Um, and I think some of that had to do with the fallout from FTX. Um, and a lot of teams got really kind of uh, disenchanted, I would say, uh, given that, you know, the price of Solana had dropped significantly. Um, DeFi activity dropped significantly. And um, that has left a void with respect to liquidity for, for DeFi on Solana. Um, it has, to your point, picked up. I have mentioned this on my Twitter. Um, DEX volumes are off the charts. Stablecoin inflows are huge. That's just now happening. And so one kind of key thing that that did happen quite literally at like the Pico bottom, it was on, I think, Christmas Day last year, um, there was a coin that was launched on Solana called Bonk. And, you know, a lot of people look at meme coins or arcade coins, and they kind of like, oh, it's no utility, yada, yada, What was really fascinating about this, this uh, kind of experiment that has gone incredibly well is that Bonk was airdropped to loads of developers in Solana that had been kind of you know, upset with what had been happening with the Solana ecosystem. Like they have plowed all this time and energy and resource into it. And now all of a sudden this scammer, you know, arguably one of the biggest frauds in US history is being associated with it. It's dragging down, people are leaving, et cetera, et cetera. So what they did was they airdropped all of these, you know, uh, tokens to thousands and thousands and thousands of, of wallets and loads of those were developers. And it turns out that, those developers are scattered all around the world where a $10,000 airdrop is really meaningful money for them to continue to persist on building on Solana. And so you had this interesting kind of set of dynamics where Solana hit $8. You know, people were saying it was going to zero, which is obviously why we got long. Um, and furthermore, you had this kind of destitute mindset amongst the developer community that all of a sudden was kind of 180. And since then, Bonk has become kind of integrated into dozens of, plat- of protocols throughout, um, I think hundreds actually, I'm, I'm way underestimating this. And not only are, are they like, you know, integrated within uh, Solana, it, it actually has become kind of like the culture coin for Solana. And so I've talked about this other podcast briefly about like, if you wanted to invest in internet culture, like like how do you how do you buy a derivatives contract for internet culture? You you really can't like maybe you could buy stock in Reddit or something, but like, you can't really buy internet culture. And so there is a there is this kind of contract that's a derivative of it, which is a lot of these meme coins, etc. Bonk is by far the kind of culture coin for Solana. And it's, One of the reasons why I think uh, a lot more retail will come to Solana is that Bonk, like it's integrated everywhere and you can just kind of like try stuff out for fun. You can get airdropped a little bit of Bonk to just try, you know, swapping or doing something with NFTs or whatever the thing may actually be. And that coupled with the developers getting this airdrop has kind of like accelerated, I would say, some of the... um, some of the activity on chain because what we're seeing now, of course, with the flows coming in and the story behind why Solana, why should I invest in Solana, et cetera. Um, a lot of it's being driven by the culture of Solana. And I think that that mm-hmm. was a problem for sure. Uh, but right at the bottom, we kind of had this event. And I think that just really changed mm-hmm. the trajectory of, of Solana's mm-hmm. um, course.
2: Let's play a fun exercise here. So bonk, I'm look like at and you know, it's roughly hundred. 100- $75 million fully diluted Val. It trades some serious volume, 30 million a day. What do you think got performed, Solana or Bonk over a three, six month period, one year period? Like honest question, like would you go long Bonk or would you go long Sol? You could only do one.
1: Uh, bonk. It's that's, a, yeah. yeah. I really? Mean, really? So, yeah. so hit, I hit, mean, it, hit, it probably
2: hit, has a, a two, two, if you think it's Sol, well, I'm How trying to figure.
0: Out I think this is like a two-three. I'm trying to think if it's basically Dogecoin, if it trades like Dogecoin, which is one thing, or if it trades like Punks, which are basically just a higher beta on ETH. So, and those are two very, very different trades. Right That's now. correct.
1: Yeah. So, so the the analogy we tend to use for folks on Ethereum is like there's Ethereum, Chainlink, and Shib Shiba Inu. and then on Solana there's Sol, Pith and Bonk and uh, Dogecoin is definitely its own mm-hmm. beast, right? But if you have something that's actually high beta, I mean, I you know, Shibino definitely high beta <laughs> no doubt about it. Uh, certainly was. Um, high beta to Sol would be bonk. Um, but I think also, like, it's very rare to find a you know, a meme coin or a culture coin that is so deeply integrated into the entire ecosystem that it's, it's everywhere. And yes, there's also the unit bias thing, right? There's a reason Shiba Inu took off because people felt like they were billionaires because they had $40 (laughs) worth of Shiba Inu, right? Like these kind of like mental gymnastics that people do uh, when they get into crypto, Bonk is obviously uh, uh, capitalizing on that as well, but there's actual like, I mean the the, the 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 team that's behind it. I mean they're they're everywhere in the Solana ecosystem, and so it's. I would actually argue that they're probably more deeply integrated than any startup that's in Solana at this point, and it's just a culture coin. So you know, again, this is not financial advice uh, whatsoever, but you know, um, mm-hmm. you I'm, I'm, longing,
2: I'm
1: longing, I'm like a
2: million. <laughs> I'm going <laughs> long a million bucks, <laughs> of yeah. I right mean, uh, <laughs> you know, okay.
1: I'm a big fan of um, Bobbles.
0: All right, everyone. So we talk a lot about the institutions coming into crypto on Empire. Santi and I are both headed out to London, March 18th to 20th for Blockworks' eighth ever digital asset summit, DAS. This is an institutional buttoned up conference that we've hosted since 2019. I like to joke that it is probably the last remaining kind of suit and tie event in crypto. People are still wearing suit and tie. It's pretty funny, but you'll actually hear from a lot of the largest institutions in the world coming from Standard Charter, FIS, JP Morgan, Framework folks coming out, Wintermute, Van Eck, Goldman Sachs. There are a couple big themes of this conference. One, Bitcoin catalysts, the having and the spot ETF. Two, a view from the buy side. Three, RWA's tokenization and stable coins. Four, Four, global regulatory frameworks. Five, institutional infrastructure, including banking and payments. And six, the macro case for crypto. If you have anything to do with the institutional side of crypto, you have to be there. Santi and I got your back. We hooked you up with a 20% off code. It is EMPIRE20. There is a little competition running internally at Blockworks to see who can drive the most number of tickets. So help Santi and I out. Register with our code and you get 20% off. That is EMPIRE20. This episode is brought to you by Toku. Toku makes implementing global token compensation and incentive awards simple. With Toku, you get unmatched tax and legal support to grant and administer your global team's tokens. From easy-to-use token grant award templates through token vesting to managing tax withholdings, Toku understands every grant structure, token purchase agreements, restricted token awards, restricted token units, token options, token appreciation rights, and even phantom tokens. For legal, finance, and HR teams, it is a huge, complex task to have to comply with global regulations around compensating people with tokens, not to mention the payroll, tax obligations, tax reporting in every country that you employ someone. It is difficult, time-consuming, manual, and costly, and it is drawing more and more attention from regulators and governments. Toku makes this simple for leading teams across the space, protocol labs, DY the X foundation minna foundation hedera gnosis safe Gitcoin, and a lot more reach out to toku at toku.com forward slash empire or click the link in the description
2: yeah can we can, like a lot of i think i want to ask two questions one is i mean you certainly i, I saw you being very vocal about salon at the bottom i also felt that at eight bucks publicly i said in this pot that it was probably a good time to buy and it was You know, what everyone is sort of dancing on the grave and saying that Solana's going to die is probably the moment where you want to counter trade that. Obviously, it's had a huge run up. How do you manage risk? I mean, it's a broader discussion on managing risk in a liquid venture asset class, but along the way, have you taken profits? Uh, You know, it's been a fantastic year. If you were along some of these assets early on, especially Sol, ETH. um, Yeah, I mean, Sol is sitting at what now? 54 bucks, 50 bucks?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, because uh, I think um, some LPs and other funds have learned the the hard lessons of a long only <laughs> venture, excuse me, uh, cr- crypto hedge fund where you're up, you know, 10,000% and then you see 80, 90% of it get drawn down. Uh, that's just unacceptable at, at asymmetric. We we are uh, on the hedge fund side. Um, we're a hedge fund, right? So our, our job is to generate returns. And so there's a couple of things that we do at Asymmetric that, I mean, it's it's not rocket science, but I don't know a lot of other funds that are doing um, these types of things. It's very common in traditional finance. So, for example, when, when you know, when Solana hit eight bucks, um, we got max long. Uh, I should say max long. We don't use any leverage. It's actually hard coded into our limited partner agreements. We don't use anything above 1x notional. Um, So, but what we can do is when you see, you know, Solana trading $8 and we knew that uh, funds were having to raise cash because investors were deeming because 2022 was such a shitty year. Um, We saw that as a huge buying opportunity, but not just on the spot asset. We also um, purchased what's called a risk reversal. If you guys have ever traded options. So we sold a put at, you know, seven bucks in eight or seven or eight bucks put and then we bought a call spread in Solana 20 by 25. So you're five points wide with pretty, pretty reasonable size and dealers will sell you that because they're like, Oh, you know, like this is a three X from here. Like how is, you know, this is no way, or I don't want to say there's no way, obviously there's a way it's just a distribution of outcomes, but they're happy to do that kind of stuff. And so one of the ways we get extra juice from just being say long Solana is the way that we express things through options and derivatives. And so we actually, kind of nailed that call spread because it went directly to 25 bucks. Um, we took profits in our spot as well because we're traders, right? We understand that on the one hand, we can have a philosophical view and a technological view, which I do. Um, That's why we're invested in a bunch of startups in the ecosystem. Um, but we're also traders and go, hey, this thing just tripled, probably should take some profits. And if it keeps running, okay. But you know, this is pretty pretty uh, hot after it just got murdered Uh, for, you know, call it 14 straight months or 13 Mm -hmm. straight months. So, uh, so from, so from our our perspective, we, we, we manage risk in a way that says like, we never go above 1x leverage. Where do we take profits? We have levels identified in advance. And that's why, that's where we pinned that call spread was like, we think this thing goes to 25. Um, Mm -hmm. Now, uh, so then, you know, market kind of traded sideways. Basically, Solana was in this 20 by 25 range for months, kind of dipped down and bounced back up. And It's finally broken out, and so now we're. I don't want to say we wouldn't be taking profits or whatever. Like we definitely, uh, you know, Solana's move has increased the implied volatility of the options markets for Solana dramatically, and so we like to sell vol when it's really expensive. So you can imagine that we're selling, you know, puts and calls uh, against some of the spot generates additional carry, and this protects us in the sense that if you know Solana pulls back we maybe got puts that we can kind of lock in the the profit there. Or if we're selling, say, I don't know, out of the money calls and we get called to it, we're probably taking profits at that level anyway. And so... Again, this isn't really like rocket science and tradfi. This is just—I don't think it's a, a common way that a lot of the liquid hedge funds in crypto operate because most of them are just long only, or they lack kind of the you know the capacity or, or knowledge for how to actually hedge your book or generate additional carry off of options and derivatives.
2: Yeah, a lot of uh, a lot of it has been inefficient pricing and who can sell you these things. Has it gotten better or worse? Cause a lot of the market makers are gone and they, you know, no longer exist. And even when they were around pricing was rel- certainly relative to traditional finance, just really wide and inefficient. So are you finding the ability to do that in size in this market?
1: Yeah. Great question. And man, do I have some stories. Um, so uh, I will not name names cause that is not my, my style. I know that you guys want this as a media company, but I can't name names. Um, I'll give you an example. Um, So there are some dealers that we trade with that are publicly traded, like Galaxy, right? Great team. Love the team over there. They're by the book. You know, very little credit risk with someone like Galaxy. um, Knocking on wood, as I say that. Uh, We like trading with Galaxy. Um, They're a little wider on pricing. In some scenarios, in other cases, they're great, right? If they have an axe, which for folks that may not be familiar with that that phrase, when a dealer is axed, it means you know an axe head points one direction or the other. So they're either you know too long or too short when they need to stay neutral. So they give really good pricing when they have an axe. Some dealers um, are uh, trade a lot of size, um, but are uh, I would say not exactly what you would think they would, who they are. Right. Okay. So I'll give you an example. Um, In June of this year, we had a view inside asymmetric that um, there's going to be news on Ripple. Some point during the summer, we didn't know when we just knew it was coming. Ripple was trading about, I don't know, 45, 50 cents, somewhere in that range. We said, all right, let's go ping our dealers and see like who will sell us really cheap, you know, Wing options like wing call options, way out of the money options um and at what price just and what size, and so we found a dealer that we that we were working with' We've done some trades with them in the past uh bitcoin and ethereum and, and I said, hey, uh we're interested in buying you know August seventh September seventh calls at, in uh you know call it between seventy and seventy five cent range so huge huge move from fifty cents um you know, what? You, you guys make us an offer on this? Um, and they said, sure, let's sell them to us for a penny. And I said, I'll take as much as you'll sell. Me. And uh, they sold us about 15 million notional of uh, XRP. So it only cost us about, I don't know, $185,000, which is not a trivial amount of money. But um, suffice it to say, uh when the Ripple News came out and it traded above 90 cents, we were very happy to asymmetric. But guess what happened with the dealer? They made us a price when we tried to get out of the trade that basically was below the price we paid for it. So, yeah, this shit's still happening. Yep, it's definitely still happening. And so, you know, lesson learned. Never trade with them again. Right. Very simple. And again, I'm not not naming names, not going to bash the dealer. Uh, they are very well known, but um, that's just bullshit. And you you effectively ruin your relationship and and your reputation when you do that type of stuff. On the other hand, there are really good dealers out there. Um, you know, it is actually a shame that Genesis Trading isn't around anymore because the trading arm yeah. was really really good. Yeah really good. Lot. And that is it. yeah. And I do believe, I think there's rumors of a team that that team is ending up someplace else. And and thank God, because they, they were very mm-hmm. good. Uh, um, and so, so there are other dealers that are doing the right stuff that are, that are, you know, will make you a price. They're not going to pull this, you know, this bullshit um, that, that we dealt with. Uh, and the more that we can kind of flush those types of actors out of the space, I think better overall, because I'm telling you right now, an institutional fund much bigger than me that comes from TradFi into crypto and has that happen, you know, they're just not going to take this this space seriously because that mm-hmm. kind of stuff ne- would never happen in TradFi, right? Uh it, there, well, there's
2: I'm, I'm thinking of the I'm thinking of the big short scene where they're being quoted C D S once he, oh, the price like prices start falling. And they're like, wait a minute, why isn't it updated? It's actually going down. But uh, yes. yeah, like an efficient market. And what happens in that scenario? Like, do you do you contest the price? I mean, is, is there any recourse? Like, can you go find another
1: bot? Like, I'm just kind of curious. Like, so yeah, so this is this is where it gets a little tricky, right? So um, we could we could go to one of our other dealers and say, hey, like we you know basically if we're long calls from seventy cents and Ripple's trading ninety cents, we say we want a short Ripple at ninety cents and basically lock in the Delta, right? So, you mm-hmm. know, if the calls go up in value and, and at expiry, they're trading whatever, like we make that money, if Ripple goes back down, well, we're short it. So we basically locked in the Delta. The problem with that is very few dealers will let you short that much Ripple, right? Cause then you yeah. gotta post all this additional collateral. Well, if my collateral is tied up someplace mm-hmm. else, right? Like it just becomes yeah. a major pain in the ass. And so, um, uh, at the time we didn't, uh, we were unable to kind of thread the needle on that, which was, as you can imagine, a huge bummer. <laughs> yeah. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm
2: doing uh, the math uh, on, on how much profit you would have made if,
1: if these guys uh-huh. were
2: actually legitimate. Yeah. It was yeah, a lot. Um,
1: I'll um, buy you coffee, Joe,
2: when I see you in person. It's
1: yeah. Thank you. you. Need it. Uh, <laughs> uh, so, so yeah, you, you could do something like that, but then there's the collateral issue. You could go to another dealer that would, that would say, Hey, um, where can you sell, sell this, sell these options to me. But, but, you know, if I'm, if I'm short the option, I got to post initial margin. It's just, it's a mess. And so mm-hmm. the ideal scenario is the deal on, dealer honors the price and, and does the right thing. Um, in this scenario, they did not. And so, uh, you know, not much you can do except chalk mm-hmm. it up to the game and move on. How concentrated
2: is your book at any given time? Talking about just overall risk.
1: Well, I'm looking at it right now. Um, it's just bonk and soul, Santi.
2: <laughs> mine, uh, mine is now too, but it's okay. Yeah,
1: yeah. I mean, so you know, look, like we we got really long, obviously, in October. So we we tend to run a relatively uh, low net um, most times, but we're we're running a pretty high net right now, just because we we think the market has shifted. Um, what does that mean, Joe? To run a higher low net? So basically, yeah, like your your net leverage in the system, right? So, mm-hmm. like, how much literal like cash do you have relative to what's being invested, right? right. So, if you're running like a fifty net, you're fifty percent cash, fifty percent right. kind of invested, right? Um, and one of the reasons we like to run a low net is we run a, we run a lot of option strategies and structures that enable us to be very capital efficient, and when we're right, they are worth a lot of money, and so you actually can still retain a significant amount of your cash on hand as opposed to just like, you know, YOLOing into a bunch of spot tokens and kind of crossing your fingers, uh, which is something we would never do. Um, So, you know, it's very, you know, to answer your question, Santi, it's very market dependent, right? So we have a pretty high concentration in Seoul right now. You know, we do have some exposure to Ethereum and and Bitcoin. Um, They they are smaller, as you can imagine. I think we actually Mm -hmm. are the only fund that actually owns Bonk. Uh, So, (laughs) uh, you know. Joe yeah. what would you say to
0: folks who are on the institutional side and feel like they've missed the
1: entry for Solana? Um, yeah, that's another really good question. I mean, if you are if you're trying to well, I guess let me back up it's probably what's your time horizon, which is like the kind of canned response to that, but it's really true, right if if you think Solana can go to a thousand, and it's trading 50, you just hand over fist, buy, right? You don't, you don't think about it. Um, if you're looking for like something a bit more short term, um, then I think you've got to be a little bit more diligent as to how you would kind of enter into the market. Um, I, you know, I, I run a Telegram cha- trading kind of channel and I've been doing it for years. Uh, thousands of people subscribe to it. And it's, it's a lot of fun because it's just kind of my stream of consciousness in there. But people will always ask in the chat room, you know, should I buy this here? And I'm like, only you can answer that question, right? Like, it's like, I don't know your personal finances. I don't know your portfolio. I don't know what your risk tolerance is. And so, um, do I think Solana is going significantly higher longer term? I hope it's clear that the answer is yes. Um, do I think you should mortgage your house and buy all your Solana <laughs> right now? Probably not, right? Like, yeah. well, let's see what happens. But I, I do think well, the trade I- is left on this
2: probabilistically, and certainly reflexivity is a big thing in markets and certainly in crypto, would you say that Sol has a greater probability of hitting 100 than it does 20 over the
1: next 90 days? Without a doubt. Uh, I would say super high probability it goes higher than it does go back to 20. And in fact, it's fun, funny you mentioned 20 because I mentioned this actually, I think I'm in my trader chat a couple months ago is that, you know, Solana has been kind of trading in this twenty by twenty five range for months, and so once it breaks out, what people will look at is is that that's kind of like generational support, almost, if you will. And so I don't think I mean, look, anything can happen, right? Like this is crypto, but I think it would be yeah. a a steal if it got back into the mid twenties. um I, I you know again, I'm not gonna I'm not uh, kind of like a predictor of levels of where you should be buying from but if you feel like it's run too fast you know too high too fast know, yeah, maybe you just set some bids at reasonable levels 10, 20 30 percent lower and then just like set it and forget it right if you're actively trading it like i am you know you got to be a little bit more diligent uh, i was just you know i
2: i've been thinking a lot about just of course we're talking about flows and stable like a lot of things you know in the grand scheme of things. Not a lot of capital is required to double a lot of these assets or more, but what weighs on me relative to perhaps other cycles is sort of this whole macro uh but you know to your point, yeah, I mean rates are where they are. I'm not a macro expert i think but but you can't overlook that I think now um, where the market nasdaq like, all of that is you know being tested, and I am curious how you th- factor all of that in and does it compute into what you're seeing or are you just saying hey look we're constantly monitoring flows if we see a a deviation from that we'll act quickly hope to act faster than others maybe i'm just trying to understand how you compute macro into all of your thinking and allocation
1: yeah great great question and absolutely we factor macro in Um, in fact if you read any of our market updates, we have a dedicated section to macro and we've had a number of our actual LPs and, and anybody can subscribe to this, you know, go to subscribe at Asymmetric Financial, whatever, if you, you want to subscribe to the monthly newsletter that we put out. um, We've had LPs tell us and other investors, um, this is the best macro stuff we've seen like ever from a fund that we're invested in. And we're not a macro fund. But the difference is, is that crypto is part of macro, whether you like it or not, right? I mean, you saw this in 22. Every risk asset, including bonds, got absolutely decimated. Crypto is furthest out on the risk curve. So guess what's going to get hurt the most? Crypto, right? We knew this. um, I don't want to say we knew this. We forecasted this in 22. And you can read it all the way back to when we started publishing our market updates in August, that we were bearish the market. We just did not see a bottom in yet for risk um, given the hiking and the tightening cycle uh, and other kind of macroeconomic uh, indicators that we had been tracking. And if you do go back to like, I think the September article, we, we predicted in in this year that we think rates will top between five and 6%. And that's a relatively wide range, but we're kind of in the middle of that, you know, closer towards the five and a quarter, five and a half. Um, that has absolutely affected our investment, um, uh, decision-making as it relates to crypto. So there's a couple of ways that we kind of put on trades, if you will, at asymmetric. And there's there's kind of three buckets. One is is fundamentals. So we believe decentralized storage is going to be a requirement for Web3 applications. So we should go find the best, you know, decentralized storage. So whether it's Filecoin, weave or some other thing, right? The other one is, is kind of event or narrative-driven. So the canonical example I use here is... is in December of last year, we we had a view that um, the kind of uh, liquid staking narrative would really pick up steam as we head into the Chappelle upgrade for Ethereum. Well, who's the biggest staker and who has a liquid token? WIDO, right? So we did that trade, but we got out of it. So that's an event kind of event-driven idiosyncratic. And the third one that we look at is macro. And the way we tend to express express a lot of our macro views is primarily through Bitcoin and and Ethereum to some extent. And it has a lot to do with uh, our ability to structure things in options markets in ways that enable us to express that view. So I'll give you an example. Um, uh, When uh, the the banking crisis happened, the the banking crisis, the regional bank uh, acute issues, as the Fed likes to call it, um, happened in March. We actually wrote about this um, like a month and a half prior. Uh, We were basically in our macro section. We had said, um, you know, the Fed keeps saying bank reserves are strong, bank reserves are strong, bank reserves are strong. But what they don't qualify is that the distribution of those reserves across banks is not equal. So the regional banks had major issues with regards to reserves, whereas the, the, the GSIBs, the, the massive banks, did not. And so our view was there's a tail risk here with regional banks because of the unequal distribution of reserves amongst these banks. Well, what does that mean? Well, if there's a bank run or there's bank collapsing or there's issues with banks, what do people then go do? They go buy gold. This has been a natural thing that has happened for forever basically uh, since banks have been around and we said all right well gold is a, you know a, a flight to quality asset well how do we do that digitally you do you buy bitcoin right and so when the the kind of banking crisis if you will happened with svb that weekend we got massively long bitcoin spot as well as a lot of upside call spread and, and certain structures that enabled us to capitalize on you know a, a yes. significant move in bitcoin and even though the banking thing is not, it's not macro like you know interest rates it is related to macro and and given that you know we saw this flight to quality narrative going to pick up steam with respect to the stress in the regional banks we wanted to be long Bitcoin in that regard, but then we didn't want to just be long Bitcoin spot. We wanted to find the best way of expressing that view. And it turned out that vols were dirt cheap around that time and we could buy really cheap upside. Um, and naturally the, the Bitcoin exploded after that.
0: What are some other, you mentioned uh, fundamental driven trades like Filecoin or Arweave, folks will need digital storage. You know, that, that's a trade there. Another one is like an event driven trade, something like LIDO. What are some other either event-driven trades or, or, or fundamental trades that you guys are excited about right now?
1: Yeah, so um, I'm definitely talking my book here on the VC side. Uh, I'm we, asking we you do, to do it. That's all good. <laughs> <laughs> we do think, um, you know, look, we do, we do think uh, cross-chain messaging and interoperability is, is a pretty important um, piece of kind of Web3 infrastructure um we uh you know did the the first round of funding with uh variant and a handful of others um into hyperlane which is kind of like a, a layer zero competitor if you will from like a, a comp perspective uh obviously we think it's superior um but uh we think that piece is going to be huge and part of this is like yes the bridging and the interop is is kind of a pain in the us now but it will be hopefully easier going forward but there's another aspect that I don't think a lot of folks, when they're looking at like cross-chain messaging or or the interop, are focusing on, which is in you know software development for decades we've had this concept of message passing, uh, arbitrary message passing through message bus or RPC, etc. And um, I don't think that design space has been really well explored as it relates to Web three because the, the the kind of canonical interop is bridging. Well, what happens when you start passing arbitrary messages of information or metadata or some other thing that isn't invented yet in crypto? You're going to need deep infrastructure routes to enable that to happen. Hyperlane can do that. And I'm not suggesting the other ones cannot. I'm just focused on the one that I'm yeah. invested in, of course. But I think that is a huge opportunity on the fundamental side that hasn't really been um, primarily explored. So that's another one of the fundamentals. Uh, as it relates to event-driven um, we did, uh, we did actually, um, very quickly trade blur when it first came out. Um, you know, we, you kind of saw like, we, we are big fans of tensor. Uh, I, I missed actually investing in them cause I had a baby on Christmas day last year and was like out of the office, mm-hmm. but tensor on Solana is like. I mean, if you do any type of NFT trading on Ethereum, you just have to go look at this app. It is mind blowing how good it is. And uh, our view was kind of like, well, Tensor doesn't clear doesn't, doesn't have a token. They're still relatively new, but they have an unbelievable kind of carve out with what a trading product should look like for NFTs and collectibles. And so when Blur came around and they did this the 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 airdrop, token launch, etc. We just thought that narrative would pick up steam with Ethereum traders, and it did. Well, we know what's happened at the price since then, but that's why we got in and out of the trade, and I think less than yeah. like a, week and a half, right? What about um, going back to your Solana
0: thesis, Joe? You mentioned parallel processing. How does the fact that parallel processing so, um, – there's folks bringing parallel processing to ETH, like uh, Monad's doing that. You have um, Eclipse, right, announced their general purpose SVM, kind of L2 on on ETH. How does that impact your – uh, soul thesis?
1: Yeah, great question. And th- this gets back to kind of my, my open source roots, if you will. Uh, I was on, a, I think I was on the podcast with uh, the Lightspeed podcast, and they asked me about, um, you know, Eclipse, for example. And I am all for the SVM being forked and put everywhere. And the reason that this is so, like, in the, like you see me smiling is that this has happened over and over and over again in open source. When a kind of core technology starts to get forked or integrated or implemented in areas that uh, hasn't happened yet, um, that core underlying technology has a very strong Lindy effect being built behind it. And the reason is you now have something like Eclipse, they have a dependency on the SVM. That means the SVM has to exist and persist in order for their project to be successful. So, uh, you know, the, the move lane chains, Aptos and Sui, they're using parallelization, right? Great. All you're doing is validating the thesis behind Solana. And so I think the more we see SVM get integrated uh, in, in other areas, the, the team at Monad, what they're doing is awesome. We're big supporters of that as well. All this, uh, you know, I don't want to say the value of the token accrues back to Solana, but the intellectual value ends up flowing back to who did it first which was Solana. And I think that that is an extremely powerful um, uh, statement to be made to new investors that are coming into the space to say, hey, look, from a first principles perspective, Solana did something fundamentally different that people said would not work. It's working. And by the way, it's now being, you know, kind of modeled with these new move lang chains. You're being modeled with Monad. It's being forked into Eclipse. It's being uh, being forked uh, into actually the Pith network. So if you guys are familiar with Pith, it's a decentralized pricing Oracle, right? So their 1.0 version just used Solana. Um, Well, guess what they're doing? Their 2.0 version is an application-specific chain built on Solana. Uh, The guy, um, the founder of Maker, what is he using for his new project? Solana, right? It's a fork of Solana. So this is all, I'm you're pro. Really excited about how the, how the
0: SVM being open source kind of lends itself to these new ideas that you can utilize the SVM in, 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 a, in a bunch of different ways, basically. Exactly. You're saying that, that value all ends up not maybe directly flowing back to Soul, but almost indirectly because it's the,
1: where it all came from. Exactly. So there, there's, there's you know, precedence of this in, in software design. So if you look at the Linux kernel, how many flavors of Linux are there? Yeah. I don't know, dozens at this yeah. point. Um, or the JVM, the Java Virtual Machine, created by Sun Microsystems. The JVM is literally everywhere, like your TVs, your micro. It's it is pervasive, and there are multiple kind of you know versions, if you will, of the JVM and the the JDK itself, the Java Development Kit. Um, did all of that money flow back to Sun? No, but what it does what is what it does is, is it supplants the JVM as this kind of canonical virtual machine for software development. Right, so if the SVM can become the canonical virtual machine for say parallelized parallelized compute in Web three networks, I am all for that because the success of the JVM has spawned you know multi multi trillion dollars worth of value for you know so I'll call it Web one Web two and just software in general. Would love to see a fraction of that happen because the SV, SVM gets forked and in, integrated into myriad projects.
2: When you think about the continued success of Solana, how do you think about the success of other L1s or L2s in that context? Meaning, you know, Ethereum, some of the L2s, some of the other competing L1s. You mentioned Aptos, Sui, some of the others. How do you envision kind of this world? Does Solana continue to suck and drive more market share, intellectual capital, or do you see thriving ecosystems and just more connectivity among them?
1: Oh man, the uh the trillion dollar question that people love to ask me because I <laughs> definitely have a non-consensus view here. <laughs> uh no surprise. So um let me kind of like caveat this with, with saying that um I don't uh you know I am not a uh Ethereum hater. I'm actually very pro Ethereum, um, especially on the technology side and some of the stuff that they're attempting to do with with dank sharding, et cetera. Like, I mean, I'm just like wowed if they can pull this kind of stuff off. The Chappelle upgrade was probably one of the most incredible software upgrades in history. So there's a lot of good stuff that I am pro Ethereum. Now, let me talk about why I don't think L2s will work. (laughs) So I've been been kind of talking about this for, I don't know, 18, 20 months or so, um, that the reason it's called an L2 is now you have two problems. Um, It's probably more than that. But the, the the reason that I'm that I'm suggesting this is that if you take it from a developer's perspective, when you start to introduce this new like literal layer of software that you are utilizing, um, you now have an upstream dependency on the L1. Well, what happens when like Ethereum you know changes the underlying source code or you know upgrades or whatever? Well, now all these L2s in theory they should just be able to utilize it. And again, I'm I'm kind of talking loosely because. I'm not an L2 developer or author, but I do know that when you're building software, if you have an upstream dependency on something, you have to maintain that dependency and it becomes, it can become cumbersome and exhausting, right? That's one aspect. The second aspect is how many L2s are there and which L2 do you choose? And then even within an L2, like Arbitrum has two chains, right? So which one do you pick out of that? And now we've got L3s. From a developer's perspective, um, you can kind of get into this uh, analysis paralysis almost, where you're like, I have too many choices when I'm just trying to build an application, or wait, I need to now support all of these other L2s, right? Um, Now let's talk about the user experience side. On the UX side, uh, which L2 am I on? Which chain am I on? Do I have the token? Do I have to bridge something? Do I have the right token? Do I need a token? Can I just use Ethereum? Like there's all this kind of stuff. And by the way, UX can totally be solved for. That's a solvable problem, but it still underscores the issue that I have right now with L2s uh, is that from a UX perspective, and by the way, I use L2, like again, like I, I know this, at least from my own experience, which is certainly anecdotal, but it is non-trivial to just, Especially, again, like I'm, I'm going back to Solana, like if you just go use something, you know, like Drift Protocol and you want to trade Perps, it's just it's it's just like a normal exchange with like a transaction approval. It's, it's so normal. It just feels normal. Whereas if I'm doing something on, you know, this aggregator versus that one, how do I set a limit order? Why is it like timing out? I just paid all this ETH and it didn't work like it just there, there's a lot of additional cruft associated with it from a UX perspective, which again can be solved for, but isn't currently today. Um, The third thing, and I think this is something that, you know, kind of dawned on me and and I know I will get absolutely flamed for this in my, my Twitter, but I was, it dawned on me when I was looking at like the rise in L2 activity and then like the the drop in L like the the cast cost of gas. I was like, wait a second, are l 2s actually now going to cannibalize a lot of the activity on the L1 which I thought the narrative was more activity on the L1 actually makes it deflationary, so number go up. And I'm looking at this going like, wait a second, if L2s are actually the scaling solution and all the activity or the majority of the activity happens on L2s, and a lot of that doesn't settle back to the L1, like from a one-to-one perspective, what happens to the de- deflationary narrative associated with the L1? And you know, again, this is like a relatively new thought that I'm, I'm sure I'm wrong on in some capacity, but... It just dawned on me that hey, if the scaling solution for Ethereum is to abstract away to something else that isn't necessarily going to impact, like, say, the 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 amount of settlement that'll happen on the L one, doesn't that have an impact on its deflationary outcome? I think the answer is yes. And the last thing I'll mention is I do think L2s will do well, right? Like we're long ETH, we're long Armstrong. Like we 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 like Armstrong as like a beta to ETH. We could sell that trade in an hour, like. The point that I'm getting to is that if you're if you're investing in L2s on the token side, I think they will actually do better than Ethereum. You've got unit bias. You've got more you know activity happening. You've got more potential narratives forming around these particular L2s, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So I do think that they will actually outperform ETH on a relative basis. They'll you know, call it over the course of the next few years. But the last mm-hmm. thing I'll mention is, is that there's a ton of VC money behind this. And I kind of wrote about this in the market update that like they're going to will this into existence. And so the notion that Ethereum is going away, the notion that L2s are going away is nonsense. And I am very aware of that because uh, the amount of money that will muscle this stuff into existence is massive. And so the irony here is, is that a lot of these same VCs that are kind of muscling money into the, the Ethereum ecosystem and rightfully so are massively underweight Solana. And I've heard from them, they're saying like, I got to get up to speed. Like, who, 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 are, who are some companies I need to talk to? What are the projects? Like, can you get my research on with so-and-so, yada, yada, yada. And so, and so I think, as uh, kind of a final thought is that, do I think L2s work long-term? No. I think there has to be some combination of, you know, developer uh, heuristics and workflow coupled with a UX improvement and, in some way that it actually helps benefit the L1 on the uh, in terms of the deflationary narrative. Um, but I do see a, a path for this stuff persisting for quite some time, whether it's the insane amount of developer activity in the Ethereum ecosystem and or the amount of VC capital that's flowing into the space.
2: Does that, um, Is that thesis predicated on this idea that it needs to be deflationary for it to work?
1: No, I'm just saying like, the uh, there has been a very strong narrative, I, I would argue, from mo- multiple yeah. communities, not just the Ethereum community, that, that hey, now that we're a proof of stake with the activity on the chain going up, it, it becomes deflationary, which is amazing. Sure, sure. It requires activity on yeah. the chain. And if you look at the activity just over the yeah. course of the past year, you basically had like a spike with Pepe coin, and you've had a couple of idiosyncratic things here and there, but it's been trending lower and to the right. You know, I mean, it's, it's not really. It's not really what you want to see. If if the narrative is, "Hey, more activity on the L one, it's going to lead to this deflationary outcome."
2: Yeah, no, certainly. I mean, I think the the more important nuance thing is what is the relationship between increased activity in L two and how much of that is settling back to the L one, and what does that ultimately right. translate into? Because I think uh, the counter kind of argument of that is, look, you believe that we're so early, the use cases are vast, power by, enabled by an L two. That if you believe that the user activity and volume is going to, you know, do some sort of order of magnitude or two increase across these L2s, that will, again, based on the ratio that you're assuming, will benefit the L1. But it again, I, I it's on the margin, right?
1: And that's exactly when I was talking with one of my colleagues, kind of sussing out my my theory here. My my kind of response was it would require like orders of magnitude of <laughs> activity in L2s, which could certainly happen in, with you know mass consumer adoption of of uh, uh, Web3 through Ethereum slash L2s. Mm-hmm. It could absolutely happen. It, I, I, like the, the the current forecast that I see has a lot of friction in front of it. So for example, if you look at the crazy amount of activity that's happened in Solana over the past you know month plus, imagine that kind of on a relative basis for L2s. I think that genuinely benefits the all one. We're just like, you know, yeah. there's the the UX challenges Although, and the workflow as well. Yeah, yeah.
2: To be fair, you know, one of the more eye, eye-opening experiences I've had in Solana was Drip. You know, I spoke with them and I, I started using it. And they said, look, even if we were to, for context, Drip is that program, you can just, they're, every day they're issuing free NFTs. And, and you in your opening statement on your Solana thesis, you said, yeah, like minting, on a batch, like millions of NFTs at once, is kind of uniquely, very unique to Solana. And the the Drip team mentioned this, and they said, listen, even if we were to deploy in an L2, it would have cost us, it wouldn't have been viable for us as a startup to deploy even in an L2 in Ethereum. So we had to use Solana. And so I think that was very unique. And Drip, again, is very nice. I mean, I think from a user perspective, getting these free NFTs which have some values, pretty, it's pretty cool. And so some of the consumer applications today are very unique to Solana. that aren't, you know, uh, you know, even an L2 would have been possible. Um, yeah. I mean, just I guess quickly on that. Point, yeah, go ahead.
1: Just really quickly on that point. This was something that I talked about with a lot of brand managers back in the 21 cycle that were like, Hey, we need to, you know, I used to work in the advertising industry in New York at an agency and, with CTO there. So I have a little bit of this kind of creative communications background. And a lot of these folks were like, I got I to gotta do an NFT thing. I don't know, like, what do I got to do? And I was like, well, what's your budget? And they would tell me their budget. And I'm like, yeah, um, the problem is, is that like, you can't do that for your audience size on Ethereum. And they're like, but yeah, but that's where like CryptoPunks and Bored Apes and all this stuff. This is where I'm like, yes, that is correct. But what you're talking about is, you know, uh, a consu- like your cohort of consumers is in the tens of millions. <laughs> and so that could be, I don't know, 10 million or uh, 200 million just to mint the NFTs. Like we don't know what the price will be, right? And so um, a lot of this, my, my my responses to them were like, you should look at something else, maybe Solana, because you could actually do what you're describing. This is before they created the, the CNFT or, or state compression associated with NFTs, where it's even... Mm-hmm. even cheaper than it was before. And so- Even cheaper. One of the things about Drip specifically is that it is one of these instances of, when I talked about that spectrum of applications expanding, this is a prime example of, these guys are, uh, they're brilliant. I, lo- I love the team, very smart, killer founders have this vision for this, you know, creator content-y type, you know, everyday business that uh, is utilizing NFTs not in the way that, say, a board ape or a crypto punks is being utilized, they're utilizing it as content. And that is a huge unlock, which is to your point, something that's basically only possible currently on Solana.
2: Yeah. Yeah. My, my, when I, people ask me why Solana, it's like it really enables unique consumer applications. And the fee market is just a very elegant design. And, and that talks to like perhaps a third point is the team, the DNA of the team and Anatoly and, and everyone else is they've just probably the best team that has taken at times very harsh criticism and used that to their advantage to improve a protocol because you're constantly an open source to your point, improving it. And I think that's a winning, if Solana wins, like, I mean, it's already winning, but if like, I think that's their main advantage is that they're, they're just, they're just built a bit different. Um, yeah. What could, yeah. What could derail Solana at this point? And then in in the last couple of minutes, I want to get your take on perhaps certain applications that you're excited about or sectors that need more funding in the ecosystem that you have a venture arm as well that you're looking out for.
1: Yeah. So first question is what could, what could derail Solana? I think this is the case for probably any L1, which is an outage, (laughs) right? Uh, Some, you know, zero day style exploit of the chain. I don't know. Um, uh barring that, I think that's implied with basically anything you invested in, in Web3 at this point, um, you know, w- one of the challenges I think that uh, Solana could potentially run into is, um, I mean, and this is, this is probably a bit minor from my perspective, but uh, they have been onboarding loads of developers. Um, and, you know, I, I've talked about this in the past where like my kind of brain dead, investment thesis as like an angel investor or whatever is just follow developers where they're going. And there's probably value there. Um, They are doing an amazing job of that. Um, But I do think that there's an opportunity to improve it. Um, One of the things that, like you said, Anatoly is, is a great friend. He he's an LP in the fund. He's awesome. He's brilliant. Um, He's gigabrain, right? So he's, he's, you know, there's shit that he says that I'm like, I don't even know. Like, I'm pretty smart, but like, this is beyond my pay grade. There is value in that, right? That kind of like pushing to the extremes of what we want to do with distributed systems and a global state machine that's running at the speed of light, like all that stuff. He should be focused on that. There's other things that can be done that's blocking and tackling that makes it easier for developer, developers to build, integrate, deploy, et cetera, monitor, secure, All the stuff that you see in Web2 and cloud, we need more of that. And so there's an opportunity, I think, for if other chains, for example, do a better job of the developer go to market to kind of leapfrog. Um, To be super clear, I do think and it's if you see like the outcome from like their hackathons and whatnot, like they're doing a great job on developer go to market. But I always, you know, I always want them to, to do more because the more developer mindshare that you can get and especially showcasing some of these apps like drip, for example, uh, um, it, it, it opens the minds of what folks thought was possible within web three. And they can actually do it, especially if you're providing like the tools and best practices and patterns, et cetera. And so it's a minor point. Cause I think they're doing a good job, but it is, a, it is a potential area of, of weakness. Um, uh, in regards mm-hmm. to some of the apps that I'm I guess on that,
2: on, that, oh, sure. on that point, maybe this is a point, um, does the fact that some projects are not open source concern you? I mean, I've invested in this company called Sec3 with Toli, and it's actually one of my largest checks because I think they're focused on improving security and auditing for teams and specifically focused on Solana. And, and again, some teams that are not open source, a lot of them are not, I think, still. Actually, very few are open source in Solana ecosystem. So I'm curious, like, does that concern you at all? We-
1: so um, Anto and I both pound the table on this on Twitter all the time. Uh, the, there, is, there is something um, that I think rightfully scares entrepreneurs about releasing their code for free. Cause they think anybody can just take it and clone it. And then that like, they're going to capture any value. And I'm like, this is the open source business model. It's really fucking hard. I did it before tokens. It's hard. It's really hard. So you have to build something that people want to use and also, you know, integrate interoper- interoperate interoperate. And so um, I, I am the, the optimal goal would be hundred percent of all Solana programs are open source. That's never going to happen. Um, Should we have more of that? Absolutely. It doesn't concern me to the extent that, uh, well, more solidity programs or contracts are open source than Solana, which is true. That's a problem for the ecosystem. I think it's a a, a maturity step that will happen with the entrepreneurs and developers in the space. And and by the way, Armani Ferrante, Backpack, Coral, that team... He gets it. I've had conversations with him and like open sourcing and understanding the power of open source and how it is basically a free distribution channel for your software is unbelievably powerful. The question is, how do I make money? How do I generate, you know, income as a business around this? And there are, you know, some tactics I've talked with some of these founders about because I'm an advisor to a lot of them on this. And so um, there's, you know, You can can charge hosting, like on the Web2 world's hosting, extensions, enterprise, yada, yada, yada. What are those things like in Web3? Well, we're kind of yet to see, but I, I bet building a killer application on top of it where no one can build it better than you is probably one of them. I mean, by the way, there's a reason that Elon Musk open sourced all of Tesla's IP. He just created a market of EVs that he dominates, right? So, yes, you're not Elon Musk, but the same principle applies. You start to distribute your open source code you're creating a market where your app is the best. Uh, So Joe, I mean, this has been a fantastic episode. Um, You're a
2: great thinker. I don't know if you want to finish off in terms of what's your outlook for the ecosystem, things that you're really excited about, um, both on the venture and liquid side, and maybe use cases that may emerge this cycle. But up to you. Yeah,
1: so, sure. So, um, you know, in Solana, I think... man, there's a lot of amazing projects. So I, Jito is lights out, um, liquid staking. They're, they're creating a decentralized, uh, stake staking pool operator called StakeNet. net. I'm probably butchering that. Sorry, Lucas and team. <laughs> uh Gino is awesome. Uh, big fan of that. Uh, I think um, there's a there's a, a kind of a lesser known, I think, protocol called GooseFX that does some really interesting single-side liquidity staking. They've got a pretty novel approach to this where it's different than what you would get in Uniswap V3. Um, Joe, does this
0: sound... It sounds like... Uh, sorry to interrupt there, but it sounds like we're basically uh, taking all of the lessons of what happened on, on DeFi on ETH of the last five, six years, or really, I guess, just th- last three, four years, and building what feels like I've played around with some of the MarginFi, Orca, Jupiter, yep. uh, what Ellipsis is building with Phoenix. Like it, these feel like almost cleaner, smoother products, um, but it also feels like we've had three to five years of lessons learned. It, do you see a DeFi evolving in a similar way that e, uh, DeFi and ETH evolved or, or different?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. I was actually gonna mention Jupiter. Um, yeah. The number one app I send people to to get started with Solana is Jupiter. I mean, yeah. I have guys that are like crypto just idiots <laughs> that use Jupiter and they're like, this is an amazing product. I'm like, exactly. That's what it's supposed to feel like. Right. Um, the thing I will mention is that, yes, I do think, uh, yes, there's DeFi on Ethereum, DeFi and Solana. Great. The products on DeFi uh, on Solana are, in most cases, I have found smoother, easier to work with in general. This does not mean that Solana DeFi is just a a copy and paste of what is on Ethereum. In fact, one of the hackathon winners, and I'm drawing a blank on their name, which is shameful, they're creating um, these kind of composable order books. Like, I don't even know if this is possible in TradFi. Like, they're just taking the concept of order books and making them composable in ways that I don't fully understand yet the value, which is why I need to meet the team. But, like, that's where are you seeing that anywhere? And I'm not seeing that anywhere. And so, again, this kind of underscores what's only possible on Solana, as well as when you give developers free reign, massive spectrum to be building cool stuff on, you end up with stuff like this. Maybe it doesn't go anywhere. But the, the idea that that type of innovation is even possible is just makes me extremely bullish on what's happening on Solana long term.
0: Joe, like Santi said, man, great, great conversation. Really appreciate <laughs> it. Uh, I have a feeling this won't be the last time you're on you're on Empire. so. Thanks again, man. Enjoyed it.
1: Yeah, my pleasure. Hi. That's great.
2: Yeah, during this episode, I went and subscribed to the fun newsletter. So everyone should go and do the same probably. We'll, we'll put so. the link in the show notes. Thanks, Joe.
1: Cool. Yeah, thanks, Joe.
0: Hey everyone, thank you so much for watching today's episode. Really hope you enjoyed it. We wanted to take a second to just remind you about our upcoming Digital Asset Summit in London, March 18th to 20th. Santi and I got your back. Seats are limited and we hooked you up with a 20% off discount code. It is EMPIRE20. If you heard it earlier in the podcast, there's a little competition running at BlockWorks to see who can drive the most number of tickets. So when you register for the Digital Asset Summit, make sure you use our code EMPIRE20. See you in London.